Mindset Athlete Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian and owner of James Robert Fitness, which is an online training, nutrition, and mindset coaching business. First of all, I'd like to thank Lauren Williams for suggesting this quote to the show. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think, and execute. Not because of some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. By Chris Hoth. And each week on The Mindset Athlete, we like to bring you inspirational athletes, a message, or experts talking about human optimization to teach you how to change your perception of your mindset and become 1% better. And on today's show, I've got Kelly Sullivan-Ruter. Kelly is a former clinical psychotherapist of two decades who evolved to become a sought-after breakthrough strategist in the entrepreneurial world. She helps women elevate to the 1% by disrupting themselves to create a powerful identity that matches the business outcomes they desire. Kelly believes that women are being called to rise and lead like never before in the modern history. And entrepreneurs are perfectly positioned to create a massive healing impact on the planet when we create abundance and success. She seeks to positively impact thousands of women worldwide by teaching them to create strategic personal mastery so they can, so they are confident, brave and command as they scale their businesses to seven figures and beyond. Kelly is a hardcore introvert, Starbucks addict, full-on Scorpio, a uh, lover of all things beach. When she isn't working, Kelly is hanging with a ride or die besties or husband and two sons, often on the baseball field, but as often as possible with a good book, a martini and her toes in the sand. So welcome onto the show, Kelly. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Obviously, I'll give the audience some context as uh, as why we're doing this today. You and I and your team would have liked to have ideally done this months ago, but obviously, as I discussed with you to see how you were getting on, you had the obviously misfortune of of contracting COVID. I did. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it's interesting, James, I don't know what the news is like in the UK as far as this goes, but here in the United States, we hear about the people who get it and sort of have a cold or they feel like they had the flu. And then we hear about the worst case scenario of people on ventilators and people passing away. But there are hundreds of thousands of people who are like me who contracted it and were fell somewhere in the middle. So I was um, in bed for two months, all of July, uh, the majority of August. And, uh, you know, as of the recording of this, it's the end of October and I'm still struggling with symptoms. So I, I fall into what they call the, the long hauler category. And so it's been quite a journey, but I am certainly grateful and appreciative that, I'm still here. I'm still functioning. My business is running. My family is healthy. And eventually I will get fully uh, well. But man, has it been a journey. I'm not, <laughs> not going to lie. It's been a challenge. Well, why, obviously, this is your opinion and, and media is very good at this. Why do you think they're being so negative? Because that's their job. <laughs> Negativity grabs people's attention. And that is what the media is in the business of. I would like to believe the media is in the business of education, 
But I think that they have many of the outlets, not all of them, but many of the outlets have evolved to be more attention grabbing than education, uh, educational. And so negativity creates drama, drama grabs attention. And so unfortunately, I think that that's just what drives ratings. And so that's the way that they've gone. But this this moves me nicely into what we're going to talk about today, you know, of t- talking of the, the unconscious mind and ultimately for no fault of their own, especially probably the US public, the news and that rhetoric that you're talking about, drama, ultimately negativity breeds negativity. What harm are they actually doing as, as a psychotherapist? What harm are they doing subconsciously? Tremendous harm. Honestly, and and before I even touch that, I want to say we all have our own personal responsibility to put boundaries around the type of news that we consume, where we consume it from, and how much we consume. So that part we are absolutely in control of, right? But in terms of the industry, I think it it brings me back to 9-11. So I lived about 10 miles away from ground zero when uh, 9-11 happened. And so uh, at the time uh, we had our windows up. It was an absolutely beautifully stunning day here in the United States, 9-11. It was warmer than usual in the Northeast. And so I had all the windows in my condo open. And for a month, we could not get the smell of what happened out of our home. And the news was replaying the moments of the planes crashing into the building and the scene of what has now gone down in history as the jumping man over and over and over and over again on loop. And I realized very quickly that we were all globally drawn to watch this. It's almost like, you know, just watching an accident on the highway or a train crash. It's very hard to peel yourself away. But that repeated exposure of something traumatic, something negative, something life-threatening, especially when you lived as close as as we lived, uh, something intensely frightening and, and that caused global grief is very damaging. So I had to put really strict boundaries around how much television we had on in my home at the time. And I was telling my clients at the time to please do the same. I know you want to watch this over and over and hear about this over and over, but you have to, for your brain and your mind's well-being, you have to put a limit on it. And so I think because this year has been so odd and so traumatic in in many many ways uh not just the death toll of of covid globally but the loss of jobs the loss of physical and mental wellness the loss of economic stability i mean just so many losses and living in a constant state of anticipatory anxiety when you watch the news over and over and it's, and, and I do look, I watch it every morning for one hour. That is the limit. I want the updates. I want the, give me the bullet points. What should I be doing and not doing to protect the health and well-being of my family? And then I'm out. I, I don't want anything else other than that. Right. Um, 
I, I think it, we have to be very, very careful because when you are on repeated exposure uh, to information that A, creates a very clear image in your mind and B, triggers strong emotion, that will directly impact what is in psychology, we call it the unconscious mind. In pop culture, we call it the subconscious mind, but it will go direct. That is the language of the unconscious mind. So we have to be really, really careful. And I don't know that the news outlets are consciously or even knowingly doing it for that reason, but we as consumers have to understand that it doesn't just affect us on a conscious level, it affects us on a much deeper level as well. Do you think, well, obviously I was in high school when 9-11 happened and Mm. social media didn't exist. Mm -hmm. It was very juvenile or infantile uh mm-hmm. be it myspace yeah, be it, yeah you could very much remove yourself quite easily because most people did not have well the internet on their cell phone or their mobile phone do you think it's gone to another level of what you're talking about when it comes to covid because you not only do you have attention grabbing of the television your laptop uh tablet desktop or phone you also have twitter facebook and maybe some degree instagram Mm -hmm. do do you think obviously because of popular culture it's made it a little bit more difficult to remove yourself because a thousand percent not even not even a little bit more difficult I don't know if you or your viewers have watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix. If you have not, I strongly recommend that you watch it. Uh, It's basically a documentary that was created by many of the original founders of all of the most popular social media platforms, as well as the founder of, um, you know, Google Mail, the developer of Google Mail and, you know, Gmail and all, all those things. And they talk about how they started with great intention of connecting people globally, but what happened was it be these platforms basically became incredibly intentionally manipulative of their users. And so I am a mother of teenagers and I watch this with teenagers and it is extremely dangerous because they don't realize they're being manipulated. A lot of adults don't even realize they're being manipulated. They're not because they're adolescents. They're not good at setting boundaries. They're not good at realizing how much time they've spent on a device. They go down the rabbit hole very quickly and can end up in a place that's not good for them. And because of what all of that stimulation does to their brain, it's actually having a negative impact on mood. We're seeing more depression and more suicidality as the result of, so you know, abused social media use because of dopamine changes and serotonin changes in the brain. So it's not even a little bit. It's a, it's a ton. It's a lot. How do we reverse that trend then? Oh gosh, that's a really complex question. And I am not going to um, say that I have the complete answer, but I do think for, uh, adults, it's about self-awareness. It's about being really discerning about where you put your focus and attention. Because what we know about focus and attention and the mind 
is that the more you place your focus and attention on something, the greater the expansion of your experience of that thing will be. So if you are constantly flooding yourself with uh, negative, dramatic, toxic information or images, you know, on and off all day long, it is going to kick off a chemical response in your body. And your body can, over time, get addicted to that chemical response. So we have to be really discerning and put limits on ourselves because we decide that is what is in our best interest. As parents, we have to, there is something that has gone on with my generation. I'm, I'm going to be 49 in a couple of weeks, and I don't know what has gone on with my generation, but a lot of them have been more interested in being friends with their kids than parenting their kids. And I say to them, I have sons, and I say to them all the time, we'll be friends when you're in your mid-20s and older. I'm not here to be your friend right now. So you're not going to like a lot of the things that I, I impose upon you, but my job is to be your parent. And that means setting healthy limits and boundaries and then holding you to them. So as parents, it's not just about discipline. It's about protecting your child's brain, their mood, their energy, uh, helping them not to become addicted to that. It's a, people say addicted to social media, but really it's addicted to that kind of stimulation. That's what it is. And so as a parent, you're, you know, it feels like you're doing something mean or, you know, you're not being nice to them by putting limits and boundaries, but really what you're doing is protecting their brain and you're protecting their psyche. And that is a good thing. And we have to stop viewing that as being mean to our kids. We're not being mean. We're giving them a good shot at being healthy adults. And and I could probably echo that a little bit because I worked in education for a little bit and I tried to be in probably uh, an authority figure. I tried to be their friend and, and get them to, to, to like me. And ultimately I, especially for the older ones, I probably lost their respect. I wouldn't say lost their respect. I lost it. I lost control because I was trying to gain their respect where it should be the other way around. You should gain my respect because you want to be deemed as seen as an adult before you're an adult. And for some of them, it was easy. And some of them, it was, well, there's no comeback from it. It's like, well, I can't tell you what, sure. to, I can't tell you what to do because I've not treated you like a child, like you still are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It backfires. It absolutely backfires. And I understand why people want to do it. I worked in a high school for 14 years I did mental health and substance abuse counseling, and I loved every minute of it, but it was very hard work and for them and for me. And the only reason I was able to get through to these kids was because there was respect. There was mutual respect. And then if you liked me, cool. That was just icing on the cake, right? But my job was to help you get well, not to have fun. We ended up having a lot of fun because when you have mutual respect, you can build that kind of relationship, right? And you can, and you can laugh together and you can, uh, build a deeper connection. But if they don't trust you and they don't respect you, you can't take it deeper than that. And the same is true in parenting. So my child may not like that I say to him, 
no, you don't get just as much time as you would like on these devices, but he trusts that I'm making a decision that's in his best interest. He might not admit it, but he does trust that that's why I'm doing it. I'd probably echo that from the, the, the child's perspective to the adult, mm-hmm. because uh, I'll bring the story in of when I was in my senior year of high school, I wanted to hang out with the high school soccer team because I was the manager of it. However, I was up and coming in my swimming career. My mom said, well, you're not going to this championship because ultimately this is where you want to see, to progress. And as an adult, and I've said it on many podcasts now that I've been a guest, she had the right intention for me then. I just couldn't see it. And as That's an adult, right. I, I can kind of say, you made it crystal clear. I don't care what you want. This is the choice that you want to ultimately make as your career, which it was uh, at that time. And it was for just over a decade. Mm-hmm. This is where you're going. I was successful in that championship. That reinforces that you're right. Cause it makes me feel better of the decision. But I think it's a life lesson for me as an adult. As I need to trust that she has the right intent. And it was the right, it was as, as an adult, you are 100% accurate. That was the right thing. That, that is, I don't care what my mind was as a teenager. Me as an adult agrees with it. Mm-hmm. Which is a very hard thing to see when you're an adolescent, that's one of the challenges of adolescence and that developmental period, right? Is that my son is six feet tall and 190 pounds. He looks like a man. He's not a, (laughs) he's not a man. He's 16 years old. And so that's really challenging because you can look like an adult. Um, In many ways, you may operate like an adult. You may be able to have adult-like conversations, but your brain is not an adult brain by any stretch of the imagination. And it won't be for many more years, especially for males. It's it's well into the first part of their 20s until your brain fully matures. Females, it's a little bit faster. Same thing with emotional maturity, much later for males than females. So it's a really hard age for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them, right? Because psychologically also what you're doing is you're becoming an individual and you want to be treated like an adult, but you don't have the brain or the mind of an adult, even if your body looks like you're an adult. And that's a hard thing for a kid. It really is because it's hard to reconcile. So they've kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place now, coming back to the social media perspective. And I was watching an NFL show over here for Mm -hmm. one of our our networks, uh, and they were interviewing uh, a high school quarterback. And the coach wasn't very well spoken, but I think he got the stage fright. But in terms of he was saying, oh, this quarterback has... I don't know how many followers on TikTok. So we pause as a fan. That's not social. That's not, doesn't make that person sociable. That's playing to the stereotype that because he's got sto- social status as the high school quarterback, he is popular and thus being able to be able to, to maximize that on social media. But from, from what you've just said, 
how dangerous is that as a, a subconscious level? I think it's very dangerous in that anything that we allow our kids to be exposed to repetitively has the capacity to enter the subconscious mind and create a, what we call a limiting belief, right? And the, the, the unconscious mind, the way it works is, uh, it does not have judgment. It does not have, there's no self-awareness. It sort of runs like a hard drive. So there's programs that, and its job is just run the program, kick out the output, run the program, kick out the output, even if the program is a poor quality program. So if you have a beautiful, say, Mac computer, but it is loaded with really poor quality programs, the output you're going to get isn't going to match how beautiful <laughs> or how much potential the computer has. It's the same thing with the unconscious mind because it doesn't judge the quality of what's back there, but the unconscious mind runs about 95% of the show. So we've got to make sure that we are mindful of what the kids are exposed to, how often, for how long, and across how many platforms because that messaging gets in there and then they carry it with them for life until and if they learn how to work with the unconscious mind, which I te teach people how to do, but it's not something you change overnight. It takes months to change and you can carry it for decades. I mean, from birth to around age six, everything goes directly into the unconscious mind because we don't become conscious beings until we're around six years old. We don't have any real sense of self-awareness. So I work with people who are in their, say, their 50s who know they picked up a limiting belief when they were five because they just heard it in their family over and over and over. Rich people are greedy. Rich people are greedy. Rich people, like that kind of thing. And the, at 50, they're learning how to reprogram that because they're finding, wow, I'm trying to build a profitable business and I keep sabotaging myself because I have this program that I don't consciously believe, but unconsciously it's dialed in. And the unconscious 99% of the time will override what you consciously think and believe. So it's really, really important if you're thinking long-term and that's what we do with parenting is you play the long game, right? You're making decisions now for the men and women you want your children to be in the future. You talked about like the 95%. Is it very much to, to give somebody a picture inside their head of uh, either the Matrix or Wreck-It Ralph where it's, it's a program ultimately manipulating something and putting uh, – well, obviously uh, actually – derailing a program and making it corrupt is, is, is so how, how you talked about like months I, i'd probably disagree i said to and i've had limiting beliefs and people will probably find that hard to believe but why why is it so difficult to to dial into that is because is it because of it's so for some people it's so deep rooted inside their brain so there's two reasons. Number one is a psychological reason, and that's resistance. So resistance, everybody has. And when you try to change some part of you that has 
um, you've defined yourself by it, you identify with it, even if you don't like it, it's just your normal. Uh, and you go to change that, even if it's a change that you're excited about, you're, you're saying this is a positive thing for me, much like quitting smoking, changing your diet, picking up exercise, any leaving a toxic relationship. You know, this is a really positive thing. You're going to have resistance to changing it. That is normal. It happens to everybody. The problem is not everybody knows how to navigate their own resistance to create successful change. So that's the psychological part of it. The other part of it is while we as human beings can sort of have this aha moment, this breakthrough, your brain does not rewire in a moment. Your perception may miraculously shift in a moment, right? But the way your brain is re- is wired, so the neural networks that allow your thoughts, your beliefs to travel up and down in your brain, that takes weeks to rewire, to go along with whatever new thought, belief, habit you're creating. And so we do need a span of time in order to change the brain. And we can't create a new habit around a new thought, a new belief, a new paradigm, a new perception. We can't create new behaviors without the brain being on board. And so we do need a stretch of time and we do need to be doing things a certain way to assist the brain in reprogramming, rewiring itself to create the new normal that you're wanting, the new outcome, the new identity, the new behaviors that you're wanting. So that's why it does take a bit of time. So does it, so it's, so it's almost like a, a paradox a little bit in terms of um, re- putting reality of Wizard of Oz of, I'm trying to get which character it is, um, Tin Man. Uh-huh. Is it very much an aspect of, yes, he wants a heart, but no, opposite. It's the other way around. Can't remember which one wanted the brain. Scarecrow wanted the brain. Right. Do you think it's an element of putting all those three characters together? The, the lion wanting courage. Uh, the scarecrow wanted the brain, and the tin man wanted a heart. It doesn't matter how much you believe it in your heart until you actually enact it and make it a reality. So very much act it before you think it, not the other way around as people believe, then you can truly ultimately change. Yeah. So really the way that I teach it is that you have to go about creating a new, your new normal. And it doesn't matter where, whether it's in business or in athletics or in family life, or it doesn't matter what kind of new version of you you're trying to bring forward. It has to be done in a holistic way. And by holistic, what I mean is you have to work on what you think, what you believe, how you manage your feelings, how you make decisions, and how you get into actions that create habits. And that all involves the mind and the brain. So we have to get it all on board. And it does not matter how badly you want something Because if you consciously want it, but unconsciously you don't have a program that matches what you want, you're not going to create it. And this is designed, we are designed as human beings that way on purpose. It serves a really 
powerful purpose because the unconscious mind is also responsible for all of our physical functioning. And if we had to be conscious and be making decisions about how often do I breathe? Is it time for my heart to beat? Do I have to, you know, is it time for the liver to kick into detox mode? I mean, we we wouldn't be able to function. Also, we've taken in thousands of really positive beliefs into the unconscious mind when we're young how you function in a family, you know, what are the sort of rules of being part of a community? How do you keep yourself safe and part of, because human beings are designed not to be completely independent. We are interdependent beings. So it's important and we're designed on purpose for everything like that to go into the unconscious mind before we're six, because it improves the survival rate. The problem is there's some other stuff that gets in there too, from, you know, your family or your religion or your generational things or trauma that you're exposed to that then creates these limiting beliefs. So for example, you may may believe I'm smart, I'm capable, I'm worthy, I'm deserving. But if unconsciously you don't believe that because as a child, you got some mixed messages about your being worthy or valuable, your unconscious mind will constantly self, uh, will sabotage you all the time. And it is the most incredibly frustrating thing because when you're self-aware and you're intelligent and you go, I know I'm a good person. I know I deserve this success. I know I'm capable, but you find yourself doing things and behaving in a way that does not match with that. That's not because you don't deserve it. It's not because you're not capable. It's because your unconscious mind is not running the program that matches what you consciously think. And so it will undermine you every time. But if we backtrack a little bit, Kelly, what's it, it, from your perspective clinically? What's the difference between for people listening between the mind and and ultimate the the brain? So the the brain is just simply the physical structure that supports the mind. And I guess you know it's been asked for centuries: where is the mind? What is the mind? What you know? Um, and it's a very difficult question to answer, other than. From I've studied it from from a psychological perspective, right? So I understand the way the mind works, the way personality is built, the function of the ego and how it gets in our way, those kinds of things. I cannot tell you where it exists. <laughs> I can tell you without any hesitation that your unconscious mind is connected to the universe and is con- connected to collective consciousness, regardless of whatever you, your religious or spiritual beliefs are, that's just a reality that's basically been proven by quantum physics. So, uh, and you can take that to a whole other level based on, you know, your own spiritual or religious beliefs, but the brain is the p- the part that we have to get on board with what the mind is saying it wants for our human experience. Because if the brain isn't wired to support it, it can't happen. There's a phrase in the coaching industry, if you can't perceive it, you can't receive it. So in other words, if you don't have the part of your brain kind of turned on and open to seeing in your environment possibilities 
pathways, outcomes, examples of what you want, it is nearly impossible for you to go and create and receive what you want. Which is why in, you know, and this is a whole other topic, but for communities that are marginalized and communities of color who don't see people in roles, visible roles, uh, it's so much harder to become that thing because you don't have anybody to look to to say, see, it's doable. And this is how they did it. And I can go research how they did it, right? Which is why I love your story and what you've done because it gives other people an opportunity to say, he did it, which means it's doable. And I can go study how he did it. And I can talk to him about how he did it. And I can now see in my community, somebody who's done it, which makes it so much easier for your brain and it reduces your resistance. That's why it's always been easier for white people because we have examples everywhere, everywhere, not true in communities of color. And our brains really need that, but so does our psyche. Our psyche needs it as well, but they are separate things. I appreciate the, uh, the, the well the ego boost well, the, massaging my ego but and this is a discussion i had with my mother last night of who was my role model growing uh growing up and ultimately it was a soccer player uh playing from uh, he's now the national national coach of, of wales but of manchester united ryan Giggs. but he is mixed race like myself mm-hmm. and his father's black but what we know now as a, as a, well, me being in my thirties, I didn't know when I was growing up. So it's been, mm-hmm. I perceived him as white. He wasn't white. He was brought mm-hmm. up by his white mother and same with me. Mm-hmm. It's like coincidental and a little bit more, a little bit ironic that that was my role model as why well, I want to be, have the same success that he's had up until well, he's still playing until he's 40. So that's a massive achievement. And in terms of their team success, he was there from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I want to replicate that. I don't want to be a carbon copy of him, right. but I want to be able to have my own reality of that success. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody asked me that yesterday for an interview. Who was your role model? It's like, well, I didn't say why, like I have done here, but he was my role model because he was successful. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to do with race. It's like, well, I wanted to be, I want to be you. And mm-hmm. how do I do that? I didn't research it. I just did it. I, did, I, I was in, I was in that kind of environment anyway. Everybody I grew up with, sport. They loved mm-hmm. it. They breathed it. They did it. Did I expect to, have this success that you've mentioned no, but that would be a bit me being realist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had the, the epitome to whatever I've dreamed to make it. It's like, mm-hmm. I did have speed bumps along the way. Oh, we I, dis- all do. I dismissed that dream of becoming a professional athlete. When I got into my teens, it's like, well, that's not a reality. Mm-hmm. You can't, become a professional basketball player or play soccer. Yes, that's a reality because I have a disability. Mm-hmm. But I had a coach when I was 15 come out of nowhere and say, what about a disability sport? 
And I wasn't very happy with that either, but that's a different tangent altogether. No, it's because I was in everybody's sport and I, and it wasn't in the spotlight. It is now 20 years on in the early 2000s. Like why dismiss it? Because I'm in a able-bodied world. I don't class myself as, I still don't to a certain degree, but I don't class myself as disabled because I'm viewed within society as what is acceptable. We will accept amputees. Okay, I'm quote unquote normal, but what is normal from a psychological perspective is a different question altogether. That uh, is true. <laughs> well, that, that's why I said to somebody would when when you look at mental health. Okay, it's marginalized because it's not deemed as normal. Mm-hmm. That's but why would, we don't use that word, or I won't use that word, uh, because I have seen too many people uh, be labeled as not normal, as crazy, Uh, labels like disabled have a context to them that create more limitations than they create opportunities. So, people would come into my office when I was a therapist and say, I think I'm crazy. And I would say, crazy is not a diagnosis. That is not, we don't use that word. We don't use that word. What you are is suffering and we're going to figure out why, and we're going to figure out a path out of it. But we don't, you know, I don't use words like that. I don't like labels in, in general. Um, and you know, I appreciate your resistance to that word, right? Because it doesn't sound to me like it fits for you, that that is just not a match with your identity. Like you just don't see yourself that way. And I love people who are willing to be uh, disruptive. And I am very outspoken about things like this because I want to disrupt what causes people to believe in limitations rather than in limitlessness. There may be boundaries around how you get where you want to go, but I want people to truly believe on a deep, deep level. And when you start to accept these societal limitations and paradigms and perceptions as your own and you integrate them into your identity, then you will behave accordingly. And we don't want people doing that. <laughs> we don't want people doing that. I, you know, We want to uh, I have longstanding trauma in my history. And one of the reasons I talk about it all the time is because the statistics and my story, you know, what happened to me, that doesn't define me. That also does not define what I'm capable of or what my future will hold because I don't allow it to. That's just not even in the realm of something I consider. So I want more people to feel inspired to say, whatever happened to me, Whatever I was born with, whatever set of challenges I've been given, I do not define myself by them. And I refuse to let those things or that thing write the end of my story for me. Well, I think people need to see that as an opportunity because, okay, we, as we're recording this, it's Disability Awareness Month mm-hmm. in the United States. It's Black History Month here. I've used that as an opportunity to be able to uh, 
as we're recording, I've got to do a presentation tomorrow to a federal uh, district court in the United States. That's because of my disability and a connection back to where I grew up as well. But I use the 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 opportunity. Okay, I'm I'm quite happy to to speak at it. It's it's an opportunity. Uh, I'm doing writing the presentation. Well, not right now, but as of today, uh, doing it and t- not picking and choosing the best bits, but using the ones that are going to have the most impact for the mm-hmm. for the audience, not necessarily for me. Sure, because uh, I've heard my story probably hundreds thousands of times it's just a difference <laughs> sure. it, it enables me to 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 better master it to have a greater impact for for anybody that's listening to it so it's it's an evolution that way and from the black history perspective i spoke to one of my alum uh universities that i attended uh in the middle, middle of the week as we were talking so I gave, they wanted to repurpose an old interview that I'd done years ago. Okay. That's all well and good. That's, I'm going to say yes, because ultimately it puts me in the limelight again, but I gave them an opportunity to speak to me on zoom, obviously in person. Thus you have another outlet of content, both mm-hmm. written and spoken. And it gives a person a choice where you can either read what I've said or you can watch what I say. And I chose to give them an opportunity for Zoom because I didn't want to interpret the question my way in terms mm-hmm. of this is my interpretation, this is my answer. Mm-hmm. Thus, if you speak to me, you can inter- interject and say, well, why do you think this way? And then we can expand mm-hmm. on the answer. And mm-hmm. ultimately, yes, I had my own motives to do it, which anybody would. Of It, it, it enables me to be able to create another form of content mm-hmm. and all I have to do is speak and then I'm finished. But I saw opportunity in this month to maximize it, use my assets as well. I've got a disability. Okay. We'll use it. I've got a mixed race. I'll bring a different na- narrative to the table mm-hmm. of, I think one of the questions was how, how's this month eff- uh, impacted you? I've given probably a different answer than the, than, than the person was expecting. I gave a different one, a different take as um, I'll, I'll, I can't remember what the exact answer was, but I gave it because I've been brought up by what pretty much I've brought up into a white environment. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have contact with my, 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 my father's side of the family, but they've not have had an influence on the way in which I think as much they've had mm-hmm. they've had some say in terms of well they haven't indirectly but be it music and culture as a teenager mm-hmm. i immerse myself into hip-hop and rap and that style of dress and if that does come back into into fashion again i i'll be current in terms of <laughs> fashion because i've done i've done it more because it suit it it, it fits with it makes the disability a little bit more um, it's more fitting because I'm not going to put holes in, in clothing because of the, 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 the prosthetic. So it's been a little bit more appropriate, mm-hmm. but I'm probably more in shorts now than ever because like, well, I'm not, I don't care what people think. Yep. I'm comfortable in my skin. If you want to ask a question, fire away. Mm-hmm. 
I can see that I could probably read it in people's eyes. It's like, you're scared. No, no, no. You could say whatever you want. I don't right. care. I've, I've probably heard most questions because it comes from kids mm-hmm. and they're not afraid to do it. And they're so curious. That's the beautiful thing about kids. They're so purely curious. It's not coming from any ugly place. It's just curiosity. So that's what I like. I think that's where, when I have spoken to high school kids, I think they're scared. It's like, yeah. well, how, I'm gonna. What are people around me gonna think of my question? How is it gonna be interpreted by the staff? Yes. I think now I've probably learned. When's the last time I did it? About five, ten years ago, I think. When no, not ten years ago, about five years ago is the last time I've probably spoken to a high school. I would probably set, come into it and say when I've stopped talking. You can ask whatever you want. I could care less what this this part of the audience thinks. Mm-hmm. You ask me what you want to, I will answer it. And then ultimately you you were coming into adulthood that way because you were holding yourself responsible to to the outcome that comes out of my mouth. So if it's it, it is belittling to me the question, I just put the ego to one side and I'll answer it. Mm -hmm. I get that. I've been speaking from stages for 25 years and I always incorporate my history of trauma in my storytelling. And I am always humbled that people line up to speak to me afterwards, either to say me too, or to say, how did you get from being a victim who's part of the Me Too movement to somebody who is healthy and well and immensely successful. And we just have these really um, heartfelt, connected conversations that are my favorite kinds of conversations. And I think until and unless people like us are willing to say no question is off the table, you can ask, I won't be offended if it's not something I'm able to answer um, or I feel is too private, I'll let you know, but not from a place of being offended. I've just set my boundaries, right? But when people see can see in your story something they can relate to from their own experience, even if it's not exactly the same, right? But they can relate to the struggle or the suffering or the pain. And they see in your story, a not completion, but an advancement of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Then they can say, oh, maybe, maybe I can do that too. Maybe I can get over this hump and reinvent myself or recreate myself or not my see myself as a victim anymore and see myself as the victor instead of the victim. But that's why people like us telling our human stories vulnerably and openly is so incredibly, I think, important and of service to other people, even if it's sometimes hard for us. Well, it's seeing the trauma as empowering. It's yes, it's difficult to uh, reach in inside and grasp it. And like you said, it's boundaries. It's I'm not going to tell you something if I don't want, if I don't deem I've either fully got over it, or it's it's too it's too 
um, too personal, like you said. It's 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 it, it and and you see that with with um, I think the aware. It comes back to the but you said at the very beginning of the show of, of awareness. Once you clear and aware of yourself, you start to see it everywhere. You start to see it in marketing of they purposely do the narrative of telling a story to, to sell their product. Yep. So, so it's, it's, I find it fast, fascinating sometimes watching adverts. Now it's like, Oh, that, that's, that's, that's very, that's very clever. Mm-hmm. It How is very I... clever. It's also one of those skill sets that can be used for good or can be used in a really highly manipulative way. And so again, we have to become discerning com- consumers and teach our children how to be discerning consumers of information so that we are making choices from what is of best service to us rather than what's of best service to the company trying to sell you either a product, a service or information, you know? Well, that's a massive gray area because ultimately um, this is where convenience comes into play, isn't it? Oh, Yes. Absolutely. And we have been, especially in Western culture, wired that faster is better, easier is better. Um, And sometimes that's just not the truth. (laughs) Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's just not the truth. I can't remember where this quote comes from. You know, you you, you got to not train harder, you got to train smarter. And Mm -hmm. the same goes with your brain. I can't remember Mm -hmm. who's come up with the quote. And it's, it's very much... If you were to epitomize that with my career, that's probably the difference between, you know, the people that are recreationally doing sport and the elite. Mm -hmm. They train smarter. Not harder. I think Kobe Bryant, Kobe Bryant probably, and Michael Jordan are probably the, 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 something that they probably combine the two. Mm-hmm. They were going to work harder than everybody else, but also mm-hmm. work smarter. But those people are probably uh, the only relatability I could probably maybe in a business sense, probably like a Jeff Bezos. It's like an Amazon. It's like a juggernaut. If you want to do that as a company, you've got to take the impersonal connection out of it completely because it's an automation. If you want the other extreme, which small business needs to be, is all about the consumer. It's all about the experience. A hundred percent. And while I have mixed feelings about Amazon, what I will say um, is that the one thing they have nailed down is customer service. And my business is a small business. It's global. It does very well, but it's considered a small business. And we are all about you. When you come into one of our programs, you are treated like a family member, not a transaction. That is part of the core DNA of my company. And that's why storytelling is so important because we are wired as human beings to connect via story. And that's why I'm willing to vulnerably and honestly talk about a lot of things that have happened in my life. Unfortunately, I've experienced a lot of trauma. And so I'm willing to talk about that all the time because it is so important that people see themselves in you and they therefore then see, oh, the statistics around trauma doesn't have to define my outcome because that can be an outcome that's available to me if I do certain things. 
And so it's really, again, another reason why it's so important when you have a personal brand or you're a public speaker or, or a, you know, a small business owner or something like that, that you really, true leadership now requires that you are out there being authentic about your story and about why you run the business you run and why you do what you do. And if it's not service-based, people are getting really good at sniffing that out. <laughs> well, I've got, I probably, to the, you're probably similar as well. You know, you can't hide from Google. It's, it's, it's out, it's out. Mine probably a little bit more so because I was in the sporting arena. I can't hide away from any article that's been put out there, be it good, bad, or indifferent. It's out mm-hmm. there. Most, mo- most of them that I know I'm aware of are, uh, pretty honest. They probably could have gone, they probably, I'd probably go delve a little bit deeper, but I give people the opportunity to be able to do that now. It's like, well, here's the information. Uh, I spoke to a gentleman. I haven't been on his podcast yes, but yet, but he wanted to go back and listen to every show that I've been on. Ultimately, I'll, I'll showcase the the ones that will give this show a little bit more of a level up. And we'll go watch this one or go listen to. I don't want to share it, but the very first one I was ever on when I finished sport, and it was a teammate of mine. I don't want to ever listen to that one back. But the only reason that I don't want to listen to it back is because of imposter syndrome. I didn't mm-hmm. think I belonged in that, that space as, well, why do you want to interview me? What, what, mm-hmm. what, what makes me so special? Ultimately now, my story get, opens the door massively. It's like, hey, here you go. Here's what I've, here's what I've, like a snapshot of what I've done. You come back to me, uh, and 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 I did go on on the offensive. I think it was last month to seek out other podcasts to go on, and they were like, "Well, why our show?" Because they resonated with my story and your title. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a done deal. When, yep. when 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 do we make it happen? But ultimately, that is probably taking you know the story to empowerment to the extreme. It's uh, somebody asked me. What what was what lasting quote would you like to leave for the show? Then they asked me the why. I got away with not having to answer the why, and I use uh, Vini Vini Vici. I I saw I uh, I came. I saw. I conquered. Ultimate mm-hmm. athletes, if they take that to the maximum, be it basketball, American football, you're going to win because ultimately, mm-hmm. that is. We were discussing which Caesar has come up with that that saying. Um, it might I have to go look because it's going to bother me otherwise. Uh, I think it's Julius <laughs> Caesar, but it might not be. But because he asked me like from from an empowerment stuff, like a motivational one, you can't get more extreme than that. It's came, I saw, I conquered. Ultimately, that should get you from inaction to action. Not straight away, because you said like it's going to take time, right. but it's going to get people right. moving in the right direction. And you and I both, well, you've been in in business. I've been in sport, pretty much the same. You put those in those two contexts. It's probably seek and destroy, and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> you know what? I instead of destroy, I think I'm more of a seek and disrupt. That that is really I, I'm rebellious in nature anyway. I always have been, but 
for me, I'm very much committed to disrupting industries, messages, paradigms, systems, things that just don't serve people anymore. And because I'm not afraid to be outspoken and I'm not afraid to ruffle some feathers, I think I'm a good person for the job. So seek and disrupt, I think would be my, definitely my, my motto if I had to just alter that slightly. Oh, it probably goes back to the days of, of me in, in high school or school in general of being deemed as the outcast. And ultimately, that's where a lot of my ammunition came from. Mm-hmm. The sport because I use every ounce of well hatred bitterness that I could which sport mm-hmm. does because it goes into a dark energy yeah to be able to I wouldn't even say make into good into make into make the individual who they are to be able to compete uh, and I use that as fuel as well any anything that I didn't agree with or. Didn't, didn't agree like from a disruptive standpoint yeah let's soak that energy in boom so it's an axe to grind or um a chip on my shoulder i used it whereas now and you talked about emotion which i think is a good one to end on is i take a step back now and what my coach got us to think about the other week as what did you do particularly wrong as the individual or the coach to put yourself in that predicament in the first place? So what mm-hmm. have you done to make yourself angry or irritated with somebody else? Mm-hmm. How did you steer that conversation now? And I think that that, was, that for me was m- momentous because like, well, okay, you, you get angry and irritated with people. What have you said undone before that? And mm-hmm. I had to take a step back and kind of said, okay. Mm-hmm. So I look and examine and, and reflect on everything I've done with an individual and think, well, okay, it's not their fault. Some of the blame has to rest at your feet. That's hard for everybody. It's, to do. I, when I talk to my clients about this, and it's usually in the context of creating business results, not just money, but impact, legacy, freedom, all the things they want. Uh, I talk about it in under sort of the umbrella of radical responsibility. If you want to create unusual results, then you have to have take radical responsibility for everything that goes on. That does, that's not about blame and it's not about guilt and shame and self judgment or it's not about any of that. It's just about self-awareness and responsibility because from that place of saying, I own my part in this, then you take your power back to do something about it. But the minute you decide it's everybody else's fault or it's the fault of something, the economy or the virus or the whatever, something that's not even tangible, you've positioned yourself to not to be a victim of everything and you can't thrive from that place. So, you know, it's certainly not that uh, I, when other people have wronged me or done wrong things, I know where that line starts and ends, but I also know that my either response or reaction to that is 100% mine. Because somebody can wrong me and I can be bitter, resentful, vindictive, angry, rageful, passive aggressive, any number of things. 
Or I can feel angry and say, and this is what I choose to do or not to do about that. That is a far more commanding stance. When you're trying to control everything all the time, you can be very reactive and you are not in control of yourself if you're being reactive. And so I think that idea of practicing radical responsibility all the time will serve you no matter what you do or, or, you know, how you make money in life or whether you're married or whatever, it'll serve you everywhere. I know you're very, very busy. So I'm going to ask you my last two questions. Sure. Uh, this is a question I like to ask all my guests and I'm going to ask you a different perspective on this. Um, Great. As a coach, if you could sit down with any coach dead or alive, who would that be and why? Okay. This might feel a little bit like a stretch because she certainly wasn't called a coach. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the only person I ever called a hero in my personal life. And she had hundreds of law clerks that she mentored and I'm sure coached along the way in her position. And so she is the the only person that I would do anything to have ever been able to just spend some one-on-one time with because I have the utmost respect for her, not just as a Supreme Court justice and the second female ever to be a Supreme Court justice, um, but because of the kind of life she lived, because of the advocate that she was, because of her temperament because of so many things. She was absolutely my hero. So that's who I would want to sit down and just have a really deep conversation with. And my final question before we wrap up the episode is if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? We talked about so much, James. We zigged and we zagged and we went all over the place. That's the most challenging question of the interview. Um, what I would say is if, uh, if there's one piece of advice that I'd like people to take from this episode, it would be to guard your attention and focus like your life and your income and everything depends on it. So set boundaries around how much the quality of how often you let negative information influence and permeate your focus and attention because it will have a profound impact on every area of your life. So once again, Kelly, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was a fun, I love zigzag conversations. They're so much fun. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a real honor and thank you to the audience for listening in. It's been my pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Kelly and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at Kelly S. Ruta. So I'll spell that out for you. That's K-E-L-L-Y-S-R-U-T-A and at the usual James O. Roberts 11. And again, I'll spell that out for you. That's J-A-M-E-S, the letter O, R-O-B-E-R-T-S and the number 11. 
And again, you can do the same on Twitter and Facebook. And in addition, if you have any follow-up questions, don't hesitate to shoot them over as well. And finally, don't forget to check out Kelly's website, www.kellyrouter.com. So that's www.kellyrouter.com. And as always, don't forget to check out my free content at fitampity.co.uk and click on the tab resources but not forgetting i've also started a new facebook group especially for the podcast which you can find by typing in the mindset athlete the links will be in the description you can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsyn.com under the category general so once again thanks for listening and i'll catch you next week for another episode of the mindset athlete podcast